the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I am joined now on the Hugh Hewitt Show from the ReliefFactor.com studio by Admiral James Stavridis, retired United States Navy after 33 years, former Allied Supreme Commander of NATO, former head of U.S. Southern Command, and the head of the Fletcher School of Diplomacy, now with the Carlisle Group. His website is AdmiralStab.com. Good morning, Admiral. Good morning, Hugh. I want to tell you another headline. Yesterday, Tom Cotton on this show said it would be a, quote, grave miscalculation of historic proportion for Beijing to crack down on Hong Kong. Uh, End of quote. Admiral Stab, do you agree or disagree with that? I am with Senator Cotton on that one. And I I had uh, breakfast with him a couple of weeks ago on Capitol Hill. We discussed this issue. I think he's got it about right. And frankly, the stronger our rhetoric is at this point in the process, the better the chances are that China will hit pause before rolling tanks into there into a massive Tiananmen Square-like event, uh, which I agree would have uh, dramatic geopolitical consequences, both for China, for the nations of the region, for Taiwan. We'll come to that, I'm sure and also for the United States. Now, I remember Tiananmen Square, and I remember uh, President George H.W. Bush being a little flat-footed in response, Brett Scowcroft being seen clinking glasses with the PRC after that massacre. So Mitch McConnell got on the record in the Wall Street Journal with an op-ed that says, we stand with Hong Kong. Sooner or later, the rest of the world will have to do what the protesters are doing, confront Beijing. And he went on to say, two million Hong Kongers, about one-fourth of the population, are demonstrating. So it is a clear divide. It is a clear standoff between the mainland and Hong Kong. What would be the consequences, Admiral Stavridis, do you think, if force was used to subdue Hong Kong? Well, here's what I would hope, and I suspect it would be along this trajectory. Um, We would be forced to break off trade talks. Uh, We would have to continue uh, a policy of very strong uh, economic sanctioning. We would potentially uh, move forces into the area to demonstrate our displeasure. Um, We would Uh, respond very, I think, aggressively to the continuing militarization of islands in the South China Sea, which China is building in order to buttress their claims that they own it, a preposterous claim. I think we would uh, find ourselves in a situation where in the cyber world, we would go on the offensive and go after uh, leading Chinese uh, enterprises that were in Hong Kong itself. Uh, that would be kind of round one. And, and of course, uh, the, all the normal diplomatic condemnation, the public cry, um, all of that would have to happen. This would not be business as usual. Now, Admiral, I, I, I know that people um, 
love the PRC. And 50 years ago, the guy I'm working for in, in uh, after his lifetime, Richard Nixon, was the fellow who opened China. And sure. we are doing a conference on October 17th, the Nixon Foundation and the Wilson Center in D.C. with Ambassador Bolton as our keynote speaker. We're into China and we want the relationship to be stable, prosperous and maturing. And it's gotten off the rails. I think if they crack down on Hong Kong, it's off the rails for a quarter century. What do you think? I would say uh, minimum. And um, the closest uh, analog here in terms of an image you ought to hold in your mind with China is that uh, think of it as a, as a strong piece of steel. We've got to bend it. I mean, we've got to change China's behavior uh, in trade. We've got to change their behavior in intellectual property theft. We've got to change their behavior in the South China Sea and building these artificial islands. We've got to change their behavior in Hong Kong, make them, as Secretary of State Pompeo said a moment ago, live up to the promises they have made, uh, one state, two systems. We need to bend them, but boy, we want to avoid breaking that relationship uh, permanently because that then spools out into a a long and difficult 21st century with a, uh, a full-blown Cold War that potentially could go hot at some point. So this is a very tricky passage, not only for this administration, and here's your point, Hugh, this is not a three-year, two-year kind of episode. What we are doing now will determine whether we can bend China in a way that ultimately is positive for the international system, and I would argue for China itself, or we're going to break this relationship. And unfortunately, uh, at this second in time, I'm very concerned that China may choose to make a bad decision here that leads that relationship to break. Let us hope not. I have been um, listening to, I read it when it came out, Dr. Kissinger's book on China, which I think is the single best one-volume introduction to China for a layman like me. And I'm struck by his citing of the uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, a mystical novel that was Mao's obsessive interest as an adolescent, wherein is uh, is the old... A concise phrase of Chinese history, out of disunity, unity, out of unity, disunity. Those are the inevitable cycle of China uh, coming together, falling apart. Are we in the disunity cycle right now or are we in the unity cycle? I think we're in the unity cycle from the Chinese perspective and the disunity cycle from the perspective of the United States. And therein lies our dilemma. Uh, I, too, have read on China. It's a powerful read. It is one-stop shopping Uh, to take you through all that you need to know uh, in terms of history, culture, background. Um, And I would often discuss the book when it came out with world leaders, starting with Shimon Peres, by the way, in Israel, who was always fascinated with China and its trajectory, one of the great towering intellects uh, of modern times. Um, I'm going to quote, and and you know this quote, uh, Zhao Anlei talking to Kissinger, Uh, Kissinger asked him, well, uh, what did you think of the French Revolution, which, of course, occurred in the 1780s? And Zhao said, it's too soon to tell. (laughs) This is is really the Chinese perspective, is to play the long game. That anecdote is unpackaged and on China. It's also in Kissinger's memoirs, which I know you've read as well. Um, And so we need to be mindful that China sees a longer trajectory than we do, Um, That's why your point earlier is so important that the administration understand um, that these are not uh, short-term gains to be made in terms of trade talks or anything else. This is a long-term, difficult relationship, and we've got to put our best minds at it, and we've got to 
approach it internationally with the interagency, with the private sector. Big, complicated problem. We've got to bend China, but avoid breaking it. What Dr. Kissinger stresses, which will be familiar to the Admiral, I want to let everyone know out there, is that China has always considered itself to be the celestial kingdom, the middle kingdom. And the farther you are away from China, the less you matter in the natural order of things. It's really quite a China-centric worldview, which means uh, over the centuries, indifference to the attitudes and indeed the peoples of countries spread all over the globe. But, Admiral, hadn't that changed as they realized the globe has shrunk as a result of, you know, things like the American fleet, nuclear weapons? Don't they now value the international opinion a lot more than they did even a century ago? They do. And that's uh, a positive for us upon which we can play. But that image that you spooled out for your listeners a moment ago of China as the middle kingdom between heaven and earth is still very much in their minds. I'll give you a practical example. When I would uh, go and visit senior Chinese leaders as a Navy admiral, um, they would want to tell me about their iconic Admiral Zheng He, who sailed the waters of the South China Sea in the uh, 1600s, uh, in the 1500s, excuse me. And um, they would point to the fact that Zheng He explored those waters in a massive uh, wooden structure that was uh, 500 feet long, uh, weighed thousands of tons, had 500 sailors on it. At that time in history, in the 1500s, Europeans finally discovered America in uh, the, the uh, Christopher Columbus's flagship, the Santa Maria, which was only 60 feet long and had a crew of 35. China's point is that for 500 years, China has always been ahead of the West. And that sense of subliminal arrogance uh, continues to be difficult for us today. Kissinger, again, 18 out of the last 20th centuries, uh, China's GDP has exceeded that of the rest of the world. And the uh, the admiral you just mentioned, big chapter on him in General McChrystal's book, and, and how the treasure fleet was just destroyed because the next emperor thought, why are we doing this? We don't need this. Uh, is there a chapter in your new book about this admiral? There is. I'm uh, looking my, forward to that. Wow. So, yeah, no, it's fun. And uh, my book is, uh, Stan's book is about leadership, how you exert leadership on others. My book is about character, about how we lead ourselves, looking inwardly. Zheng He, this Chinese admiral, was masterful in that regard. There's a lot to learn from the Chinese, and that's the point. On the other hand, Their behavior cannot be allowed to disrupt fundamental international norms as we see today. Then that brings me to the American fleet size. I wrote a piece in the Washington Post that really, uh, really upset some people in the Navy. What did I hear from people saying, you know, we don't build ships for politics. And I was actually proceeding from the assumption that everyone knew we got to get the 355 ships. Apparently not. And that the inevitable consequences of shipbuilding the 355 would be good for certain red states. But... Let's go back to the fundamental assumption. If China is growing at a capital ship a month, which they are, we cannot stay out of that game. Right, Admiral? No, no question. Uh, And there's two different um, streams of thought here. One is, what should the size of our fleet be? And 100% agreement, our fleet size must be in the 350-ish range. We're a long way from there. And it's not just China. We have global interests. We have to face... Uh, resurgent Russia at sea, 
et cetera. So th- that's one stream of thought. The other is on the politics of the matter. Um, hey, let's let's do a reality check here. Across all administrations, decisions are made based on some level of political activity. And I'll, I'll just close that thought with a quote from a Navy admiral you might have heard of, Hyman Rickover, ah, yes. who was the father of the nuclear Navy, who led the way to building our massive and capable nuclear submarine force. When he was asked once why he led the charge to change the names of submarines, originally they were named for fish from the sea, pretty appropriate. He started naming them after cities and after states. Our ballistic missile submarines are all named after states. He was asked, why would you do that? And he said, because fish don't vote. <laughs> On that note, Admiral Stavridis, he's right. And the Ohio class is the greatest class of submarine ever. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest as always. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.